dead than all hope, listeners. You're listening to Radio Grognard, the OSR podcast about stuff, with your host, Glenn Hallstrom. Hiya, folks. Old Man Grognard here. Hope you're all doing well, as I am. Oh, I'm doing well. Sure. <laughs> Been doing some drawing, had some good uh, talk on Tamar Chat Thursday night. We were talking about what it takes to keep a community going online, things like that. Tavern Chat and things. And Tavern Chat is always fascinating. You can get on the Discord, the Tavern Chat and Discord server. Uh, give Eric Tinkar, drop Eric Tinkar a, an email or a message on Facebook or something if you're friends with him. Or go over to the Tinkar's Tavern on Neutral Ground Facebook page and see if you can't wrangle up... Uh, an invite. I'm sure he can he can fix you up. Anyway, today we're going to dive into Sashing Swordsman Sorcerers of Hyperborea again, and this time we're going to talk about treasure and all things that adventurers can collect. And we will do that after this. Before we get into any kind of Hyperborean Falderall, I do have a voicemail from John Allen Large talking about the phased combat I did a few a few episodes ago. Go ahead, John. Hey there, Glenn. It's John here from the Red Dice Diaries. I'm listening to your What When episode from July the 15th, at the home of our podcast listening, trying to catch up. And I've got to say, I pretty much agree with you, to be honest. Whilst I can see the advantages of the phased movement that's used in some games like uh, Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea, and yeah, there are some tactical advantages to doing that. Personally, for me as a GM, I find that the additional hassle of remembering the phases and who's gone in what phase and stuff like that outweigh any benefits for the game of actually using that. So I generally go with the when it's your initiative, you take your actions, we move on to the next person's initiative. And I find that much simpler. It's maybe not quite as tactically flavorful, but it keeps everything flowing a bit better, in my opinion. Enjoying the episode, dude. I'm going to get back to it. Take care and stay safe. I'll catch you soon. Thank you very much, John. I appreciate that. Yeah, face combat, you're right. I'm just, there is, like I said, you, you, you're right. There is a tactical advantage or two, but I don't think it outweighs what I'm doing, which is basically everybody rolls, you know, like I said, everybody rolls a D6 or a D10, and I roll a D10 for all the bad guys. And then we just go, or six or ten. I I used to say I do a D6 for a smaller party and larger parties. I do D10s, but I'm leaning more and more towards D10s these days because there's less of a chance of simultaneous action. And, you know, I know in 5th edition now, it's a little roll off. Well, I don't like doing that. I just say, you guys both move at the same time, and this is what happens. And, you know, it, it gets a little anticlimactic after a while. And using a D10 for for initiative is, well, it's easier to, how shall I say it? it, it's easier to plan actions for the players. You know, if they want to, if they want to wait until the end of the turn, fine, you know, delay their turn, wait until something happens, whatever, easier that way. Anyway, thank you very much, John, for sending me that. I appreciate it. All right, the core rule book of Stashing Swordsman, the treasure, volume five treasure section. And that is on page 425. 
And it's got a lot of stuff. First thing you're going to be hit with after the table of contests is treasure determination and a nice big old treasure class chart. That's not the only chart in here, but that's the first one you see because they do treasure classes. If a monster has something in their lair or some kind of treasure on them, it'll be class A, B, C, D, etc., etc., right down to Z, Z. And what you do is it, you can read across copper piece, silver piece, electric piece, gold piece, platinum piece, gems, jewelry, and magical treasure. And what you do is it'll say like copper piece times 500. You, you'd give it a 2D6, you know, roll under. If you if you roll it, you, there is that much, 500 copper pieces. You can do a percentile roll on that, too. In parentheses, it's got like 25%. You run a roll under 25, okay, there's 500 copper pieces. And that's for treasure class A. I'm just reading across here. They've got both. You can like you can either do a, D roll, a die roll. Uh, like 2d6 silver, 2d6 electrum, gold pieces 2d10, platinum piece 1d4. It gives you the percentile roll under that too. Also magical treasure, you can pick them any two, any three, but they also give you a percentile. Personally, I think the percentile is probably the easiest thing to do. That's what I would do anyway. And it just goes on from there. Very good chart. What else do we have? We have a monetary, it was monetary treasure section. You have, it talks about coins and gems. You have charts, you have uh, percentile charts for coins and for gems. And jewelry, on another page, you have jewelry types and value. So I, I kind of like these charts if I'm doing my own thing, if I'm not doing a module. And this is the kind of stuff I would pour over if I had to put, if I had to put treasure, I always, see the thing is, when I come up with stuff, I always forget to put treasure in there. So I will pour over these pages going, ooh, uh, it's almost too much. It's almost like a, sh a shopping expedition where it's almost like supermarket sweep. You get, you, you, you get, I get overwhelmed by the, the stuff magical and mundane on here. In fact, the next chapter is magical treasure. It's got some interesting in things in here. Scrolls, the type of scrolls, Kirk scrolls, all the charts, magical scrolls, potions, and it goes on and on with magical stuff. Descriptions, of course. Staff of the Seeker, Staff of the Snake, all kinds of sta staves, magical rings. There's... And, you know, magical armor, weapons, swords, etc., etc., etc. What I find fascinating in here is that it comes up with a couple of, couple, couple of neat things. Magical melee weapons are fun, of course, always. It's, they've got, in magical missile weapons, they show a picture of the glaive from the movie Krull, but they give no stats for it. That was frustrating. Why did you even put the picture in there? You didn't even label it glaive. No, that's no fun. And one th there are a couple of unusual things in here. First of all, they have the if you, so, some some things you may recognize from other things like the the bow plus three eldritch energy. That's basically Hank's bow from the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon. And the 
one of my favorite arrow plus three yiggs arrow which this is the arrow that james earl jones used in the the, the original conan movie where he killed the the heroine with he took the snake and he pulled it out and he fired it in his bow and it bit her and she died and that's exactly the way it works only it's kind of like it looks like a snake that is thin as an arrow and unnaturally stiff you pull it out you do it they make a save if they blow it they die and even so, it still does two. Even so, the venom will still do two two d six hit points of damage if they survive. If it misses, it'll just turn into a shadowy serpent and slither away. So yeah, okay, yeah, that's James Earl Jones' arrow from Conan, which I some of the stuff I like. I love the tough the touches they put like that in there. Also, they have certain artifacts in here. Now, if it's anything science fiction-y like a radium pistol or a radiation grenade, things like that, frost ray gun, they're usually treated as like artifacts from Atlantean times because Atlanta in the pa- Atlantis in the past was supposed to be this very, they were very advanced. I think they were, I think they were uh, colonized by people from another planet or something, so they they had all this advanced technology. It was totally lost when they got submerged and when the Atlanteans came in here. I've, I don't remember the history, but the fact that they turn up every once in a while. And the way the, it looks in the book that they do look alien. As in, this doesn't look like a ray gun. This looks like some weird, fancy thing you're supposed to point even though there's a picture in here of a couple of adventures with like what look like ray guns you know blasters uh shooting shooting an undead but at the same time it does not look of this world but it also doesn't look of like star wars or something like that i would hate that i would hate that all kinds of miscellaneous magic items which is nice uh it has some of the standards like a bag of devouring, boots of striding and springing, and there are ion stones in this world, which is good. I always like ion stones. They're so much fun. And in the back of the chapter, they have a discussion about one scrivenery, in other words, the, the manufacture of spell scrolls and protection scrolls, and a chapter on al- a short chapter on alchemy, a two-page chapter on alchemy and poisons, potions and poisons. It gives a brief, his- brief history of alchemy in Hyperborea, which dates back to when the Snake Men were, were on the were on Hyperborea, way back millennia ago. And how that alchemy is kind of a lost art. A few people still practice it, but it's kind of a every generation. Like it seems like you know the the Hyperboreans and the other people, you know whatever race comes along, they come up with alchemy and then they get wiped out. That kind of thing. The last time it happened, the Hyperboreans had alchemy, and then the Green Death happened. So. That kind of thing. And the last page is about magic item creation, which is basically just kind of gives you a, you know, who can make it. It's very rare. Magic items are rare and stuff like that. It doesn't really tell you how to do it, but it gives you kind of an overview of the world. And frankly, if if somebody wants to create a magic item, you just talk to the GM and you work it out from there. I, I'd leave it that way, too. Also, there is one of, one of the things I forgot to tell you about uh, in, in the, the arrows. 
there is an arrow in here that is an arrow plus three otherworldly being slaying. This hemlock plus three arrow is flecked with goose feathers. Feathers is shaft engraved with death rune designed to slay otherworldly beings. Aboliths, crabmen, elder things, fishmen, the great race, Migo, night gaunts, Puna, Puna, sporemen, and tentacular horrors. If the arrow hits an otherworldly being, the creature is at once slain and the arrow destroyed. So, something to go up against the eldritch lovecrafting creatures and... If the GM is inclined to let this happen, yes, it is an arrow of killing Cthulhu. So that's something you don't see every day. <laughs> anyway, that's that's the treasure section of Hyperborea. We'll get into another part of it next time. In the meantime, I got to go start my day. So. If you want to talk to me about this or anything else, oldmangrognar@gmail.com, or you can drop a voicemail on Anchor. We're monetized, so as little as 99 cents a month, you too can help support this program, and I would thank you. Thanks again, Jonathan, Oliver, Gilbert, Juan, Carlos, Daniel, Dan, Benjamin, Jason, and John Allen. Thanks, guys. Don't forget Dan Gregg's podcast, the Young, Y-U-N-G, Young Grognar podcast, Mark C. Wallrings, The Yawning Albert Podcast, Big John Allen Larges, The Red Dice Diaries, and my friend Eric Tinkar's Tavern Chat. So, until I see you folks next time, keep the dice warm, and I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Questions? Comments? Send them to oldmangrognard at gmail.com. We'll see you next time when Radio Grognard is on the air. <laughs> <laughs>